Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Philip Gordon. He's the Mary and David Boyce Senior Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, former White House coordinator for the Middle East, and author of Losing the Long Game, The False Promise of Regime Change in the Middle East. Phil and I will discuss the lessons learned and not learned from the U.S. regime change efforts in the region, U.S. policies toward Iran, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, the benefits and limits of Israel's normalization agreements with the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan, and the challenges the Biden administration will face in the Middle East. My conversation with Phil Gordon begins after this short break. As a matter of U.S. policy, my argument is, you know, the next time leaders or policy experts tell you that you know, the right way to go is to change the regime, you know, whether it be in Iran or elsewhere, I would just remind them of this history. Every time we've heard that before, we've ended up overstating the threat, uh, understating the cost and failing to anticipate all sorts of unintended consequences that inevitably derive from efforts to uh, reach such far-reaching goals. That was Phil Gordon of the Council on Foreign Relations, who will be joining us shortly. Before getting to our conversation with Phil, let me mention a trend we are tracking here at Monitor. The incoming Joe Biden administration will find that key Middle East fault lines are increasingly present in Africa, including in the Horn of Africa, where Ethiopia is undergoing a civil war that has implications beyond its borders. For Egypt, there is no higher priority than reaching a satisfactory conclusion in negotiations with Ethiopia over the allocation of water from the Nile River that will be affected by the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, GERD or GERD. Egypt depends on the Nile for more than 90% of its water needs for its 100 million citizens, many of whom live along the Nile. Cairo wants an agreement that will assure its fair share of water once the dam is built. For Ethiopia, the dam could reshape development of the country and the region. The dam has also been woven into an Ethiopian populist narrative. The country has rejected interference from Egypt or anyone else in its development planning around the dam. The United States, the World Bank, and the African Union have all been involved in trying to broker a compromise between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan, which is a third party to the talks. Now, no surprise that Egypt is watching with interest and concern the outbreak of civil war in northern Ethiopia between the government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. The war is both a threat and opportunity for Ethiopia's neighbor and one-time adversary, Eritrea. Now, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed got the Nobel Peace Prize for burying the hatchet with Eritrean President Isaiah Sefwerki two years ago. The Tigray region, which is in the north of Ethiopia, borders Eritrea and includes territory that had been in dispute between the two countries. The TPLF recently attacked Eritrea's airport in its capital, Asmara, and there are reports that UAE drones, which are based in Eritrea, 
where the UAE has maintained a military base for some time, may have been used in retaliation against the TPLF. Now, Isaiah may also be looking to seize an opportunity in Ethiopia's troubles. His longtime grievance has been with Tigray, and he may be tempted to take action against the TPLF seemingly as an assist to Prime Minister Abiy and to gain greater influence and create some facts on the ground and any future border dispute with Ethiopia. Now, for Sudan, the Ethiopian war is already sending thousands of refugees into the country, and its economy really can't handle them. Sudan has called for a new approach to the Nile River talks, which it is described as, quote, useless in the present format. Now, with the uncertainty surrounding the civil war in Ethiopia, Egypt needs Sudan on its side in the talks, and has sought to deepen its political and security relations with Sudan. Sudan is both a party to the GERD talks and the third country after the Emirates and Bahrain to normalize ties with Israel this year. Deepening Egypt-Sudan military ties are a further check on Turkish influence, which has been fading in Sudan since the overthrow of former president and war criminal Omar al-Bashir, who was deposed in a coup last year and who was friendly with Turkey. Now, Egypt is also seeking to leverage ties with Sudan and Israel to counter rising Turkish influence in Somalia. Turkey views Somalia as a counterweight to the loss of Bashir for strategic influence and access to the Red Sea. Sudan has also been on Russian President Vladimir Putin's agenda. This week, Sudan agreed to allow Russia to build a naval base in Sudan. More broadly, however, Putin's move is a signal to China, Turkey, and the United States that it, too, will be a player in Africa. This is all really just scratching the surface of the increasingly blurred lines between the Middle East and Africa. And you can follow these trends and many more at El Monitor, including in last Friday's Week in Review column. Now to our guest in conversation today, Dr. Phil Gordon, as I mentioned earlier, is the Mary and David Boyce Senior Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as White House Coordinator for the Middle East and as Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs during the Obama administration. He also was on the NFC staff under President Clinton. Phil is the author most recently of Losing the Long Game, The False Promise of Regime Change in the Middle East. That's a must-read on U.S. policy in the region. We'll be talking about that with him today. Our conversation with Phil Gordon begins now. Phil, welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be with you. I want to read a passage from Losing the Long Game, your must-read book on what you call the false promise of regime change in the Middle East. And really, this is an amazing summary of, of the pitfalls of regime change and the record of regime change. You write that the effort is a, quote, history of repeated patterns which underestimated the challenges of ousting a regime, overstated the threat faced by the United States, embrace the optimistic narratives of exiles or local actors with little power and vested interests, prematurely declared victory, failed to anticipate the chaos that would inevitably ensue after regime collapse, 
and ultimately found themselves bearing the costs, in some cases more than a trillion dollars and thousands of American lives for many years and even decades to come. Now, that's a fantastic summary of uh, the regime change experience. Given that record, why does it have such a hold on U.S. policymakers over decades when the record has been so dismal and the cost so high? Um, uh, indeed, Andrew, that was, uh, that's a riddle that I wanted to try to approach or solve in this book. It's one of the reasons I looked at it. And frankly, I, by looking back over 70 years uh, of U.S. regime change efforts, I was str more struck than I thought I would be about how consistent the patterns are and how poor the results are. Um, in the book, I, I go all the way back to the 1950s where you know, we do the CIA-backed coup in Iran, but then I look at two interventions in Afghanistan, uh, supporting the Mujahideen against the Soviet-backed government in the 80s and then overthrowing the Taliban in 2001. And then we have the classic regime change of the 2003 Iraq War. And then three episodes under President Obama, uh, for whom I worked, uh, in Egypt, Libya, and Syria, where we also set out to change regimes. And what's striking about that story is that we do it for so many different reasons, right? You don't, this is not, uh, in some cases, we're doing it for geopolitical or Cold War reasons. Uh, some cases, it's terrorism, obviously. The Taliban after 9-11 in Iraq. Sometimes it's weapons of mass destruction. Sometimes it's just spread, it's spreading democracy or, or saving lives. But what's striking about the story is that no matter why we do it, and indeed no matter how we do it, because we also use lots of different means, those patterns that you summed up from my text uh, apply to virtually all of them. We, we overstate the threat. We underestimate the costs. We fail to anticipate the consequences. Uh, we often prematurely declare success, thus the title of the book, Losing the Long Game, because often you know, there's a mission accomplished moment. But, uh, but that's the story. No matter what reason we do it, and no matter how we do it, uh, those patterns are really very profound. Bill, you have a section in the conclusion that's uh, the subtitle is, and one of the reasons for uh, this pattern is that, quote, you, you say Americans don't know enough about the Middle East. Now, you know, many of the people you and I know who have worked in government are incredibly capable people. I mean, you served in government, you're a student of the Middle East in the region. Uh, you know, just on this podcast, we've had people like, you know, Ryan Crocker and Chuck Hagel and on the Hill, Senator Chris Van Hollen, Alyssa Slotkin. These people know the region, and, and my hunch is they would agree with just about everything you write in your book. How is it that such fantastic expertise and experience that the U.S. does have in its diplomatic corps, its executive branch leadership, and in members of Congress doesn't always get to the top and that regime change still comes back around? So let me tell you what I mean by that. And, and some of the people you cite are obviously brilliant and deeply knowledgeable experts on the, on the region. What I mean by that, and I also want to tell you not just what I mean by it, but why it's only part of the answer. I am in no way saying that the main reason for the failure of regime change is an absence of knowledge on our part. I think that's a, a partial answer, and I'll get to what I think the more important reasons are. But what I mean by that and not knowing enough is that in many cases, we're flying blind. I mean, you can be a great expert on the region with lots of 
contexts, uh, and yet um, not fully understand the dynamics that will take place if and when we remove a regime that was in place. I mean, look at the uh, Iraq war, and, and part of this is not, it's not to blame the experts, you know, and you know, pe people like us. In many cases, we're talking about places where we don't have people on the ground, because almost, you know, by the very nature, by the time you get to regime change, these are not partners where we have necessarily an embassy and, and lots of businesses and civil society uh, on the ground. In, in, in Libya, before we went there, we didn't have an embassy for 20 years, uh, similar to Italy and Afghanistan. Uh, in Syria, we had to pull our ambassador and then figure out what to do, often relying on the information of others, and the others often have vested interests. And that's one of the things you find in this dynamic, because we're not there, is relying on um, uh, others for information. And so in Iraq, obviously, we were famously misled by people like Ahmed Chalabi and others who had vested interests and persuaded the Bush administration that Iraq did have weapons of mass destruction, did have links to terrorism, and most importantly, that it would be stable and unified and avoid civil conflict if we went in. That's a glaring misunderstanding. Someone, some might say willful misunderstanding, but misunderstanding of what would take place on the ground. And so we find ourselves, you know, in, in Afghanistan, we relied on Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to figure out which groups to get uh, weapons to. In Syria, I think we'd have to acknowledge that we really had very little understanding of which groups were doing what. So that's what I mean by that. And, uh, you know, memoirs and histories of these interventions are replete with um, examples of misunderstanding the dynamic on the ground and what would take place. And so again, it's not a criticism of our expertise or even busy policymakers who can be forgiven for not you know, knowing the relationships between uh, all sorts of different Pakistani and Afghan groups before undertaking a project like that. So that's the point, but let me just add, uh, equally important is the fact that even if we had virtually perfect information, it wouldn't solve the fundamental problem of regime change, which is that when you create a security vacuum, particularly in cases like these, you don't have a reasonable means of filling it. And that's the dynamic in almost all of these cases. We open up or uh, exacerbate a security vacuum, which gets, gets filled by all sorts of competing domestic actors and regional actors, and then find ourselves um, either unwilling or unable to bear the costs of filling that vacuum. Bill, you mentioned earlier Iran, and in your book you call this the original sin of US regime change in the Middle East going back to U.S. support for the coup against Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1953. The U.S. can't seem to totally let go of the notion of changing the regime in Iran. It got a breather during the Obama administration, which you work for, and the result was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. Regime change has been implicit, sometimes explicit, in the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, although Iran has indeed been weakened by the sanctions. Would you say categorically that regime change in Iran should be off the table? And if so, how do you see balancing concerns about diplomacy with Iran and preventing a nuclear weapon and other interests in the regions of war in Yemen and Syria with concerns about human rights, for example? Right, so this is another reason I, want, I thought it'd be useful to write a book like this, um, because there is a debate about regime change in Iran now. And it felt to me that over the past couple of years, the Trump administration was 
significantly moving in the direction of a regime change policy in Iran. Now, that's obviously not their official policy. The official policy is to change Iran's behavior. But when you look at the way the administration talked about it when Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal and said Iran was on the verge of collapse and uh, launched this maximum pressure campaign designed apparently to create so much frustration among the uh, Iranian people that it rises up with US support and overthrows uh, the regime and making conditions, frankly, on the nuclear side that are almost seem designed to be rejected. You put all that together and it looks like a real policy of uh, a regime change for Iran. And so it was in that context, in fact, that I said, before we do that, you know, maybe that's a good idea. I don't think anyone, uh, many people would debate that we'd be better off if there was a different regime in Iran and so would the Iranian people. But the question I wanted to ask was, so before we do that in Iran now, you know, maybe we should look at the track record of these sorts of efforts. Because by the way, in all of these previous cases, there was also a sound basis for wanting to see a different regime. I wanna be clear about that. In all of the cases I look at, uh, the status quo was miserable. You had a, you know, repressive dictators and threats to neighbors and threats to us. So in every case, there is a, a good reason, or at least it's understandable why we might say, you know, we'd do better off if we could get rid of that regime. But what the track record shows is that when we actually execute that policy for reasons that we just uh, briefly discussed, the result is often hugely costly and we fall far short of our objectives. So where uh, Iran today is concerned, that's what I think we should learn from the past. It's indisputable that we would be better off if the current Iranian regime wasn't in place because they do repress their own people and they have pursued weapons of mass destruction and supported terrorism and threatened their neighbors. Uh, so the question is not, would we like to see a different regime in Iran? The question is, what would be the consequence if we go about it um, uh, in ways that led to um, instability and opened up the same sort of question in Iran to which we wouldn't have the answer? And so when you say, should it be taken off the table? Um, as a matter of US policy, my argument is, you know, the next time leaders or policy experts tell you that you know, the right way to go is to change the regime, you know, whether it be in Iran or elsewhere, I would just remind them of this history. Every time we've heard that before, we've ended up overstating the threat, uh, understating the costs, and failing to anticipate all sorts of unintended consequences that inevitably derive from efforts to uh, reach such far-reaching goals. Bill, I really liked your account of the Obama administration's uh, Syria policy. There's a kind of a, a toe in the water on regime change, which President Obama and many of his senior advisors, including you, never felt quite comfortable with, especially following what happened in Libya. And one of the lessons you've mentioned in general for, re, uh, for regime change has been that you need regional powers to buy in. Something that my former RAND colleague and your co-author of uh, several serious studies, James Dobbins, has written about is an absolute necessity in, in post-conflict situations. Now, in Syria, the key regional power that has perplexed U.S. policymakers has been Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Reflect for us a bit, if you could, on the experience of dealing with Turkey in Syria and where you see U.S.-Turkey relations going 
And what's the best approach for dealing with President Erdogan when it seems today that so many uh, interests and issues are divergent with regard between the United States and Turkey? Uh, right. So there, Andrew, you raised a lot of important and interesting points. Let me um, uh, address a couple of them. Because first, before we get to Turkey, you rightly point out the sort of paradox of Obama pursuing effectively regime change in Syria, you know, as we did in Libya with an intervention, and, and in a different way through diplomacy in Egypt as well. In each of those cases, the Obama administration set out to bring about a different government and either and even political system which is how we define regime change. And that was also you know, a puzzle or interesting for me, especially having lived through it. You know, how do you get this president uh, who instinctively is opposed to regime change in Middle Eastern interventions, obviously, and to a degree, he made his name opposing the Iraq war, uh, which helped launch his presidential run. You know, how and why does he end up doing this? Goes back to your original question, Andrew, about you know, why do we keep doing this if the track record is so poor? And I think it just does show this persistent American tendency for understandable reasons to believe that we have the power to achieve these far-reaching aims if we just set our minds to it and devote enough resources. Um, and you know, you would have thought that would have that instinct would have gone away after the colossal failure of the Iraq War 2003 and the costs uh, in, in human lives and money and geopolitical instability and, and terrorism and so on. And it kind of did, but under Obama, I think because of developments on the ground, we let ourselves believe again that uh, we had the means to solve this problem. It's sort of a persistent tendency in American strategic culture to believe that every problem has a solution. And in this case, that solution can come through American power. So that's what takes us to Syria, where obviously I think it is well known, President Obama hardly was eager to intervene in Syria and resisted those pressures for quite some time before ultimately embracing a, an approach that was designed to bring about a different regime in Syria through support for the opposition. And indeed, and this brings me sort of to your, your last point that I emphasize in the conclusion, obviously we could spend an entire hour on Syria and what went wrong there, but this factor of neighboring powers was critical. And it's always critical, and, and Jim Dobbins is right, and I've heard him say this too, and I, I think it's a vastly underestimated point. We often think and hope that neighbors will help us solve these problems, when in most cases, the opposite is the case. You know, we look for peacekeepers among the neighbors. We heard that in the run-up to the Iraq War extensively. People who advocated for the Iraq War and tried wanted to reassure the American public that it wouldn't cost us too much, uh, kept saying and writing that we wouldn't have to do the peacekeeping because the neighbors would do it, the Saudis, the, the Turks, uh, and others. But one, they're rarely willing to do so, and two, they have different interests from us. And we saw that in Iraq, it wasn't the neighbors who had to try to keep the peace, it was US troops. And even worse than that, not only do neighbors not uh, often step up with the resources and help that we need once we help create these vacuums, they often want to thwart us, and that is precisely what happened in Syria. And even you know, before we get to Turkey, uh, in that case, the neighbors in question are Russia and Iran. The, the, I was going to say one reason, I could even say the main reason our approach didn't work of supporting the opposition to overthrow the Assad regime is that it didn't take place in a vacuum. The more we did for the opposition, the more Russia and Iran did to prop up the regime. And they had deep and profound interests. You can disagree with their interests and their motivations, 
but you also have to acknowledge them. And if you overlook them, you find yourself paying a price. So that's what happened in Syria, is once we decided to throw our weight behind the opposition, which was pursuing violent regime change in Damascus, we failed to see that our escalation wouldn't lead to capitulation by the regime, but instead uh, escalation, counter-escalation by the regime and its Russian and Iranian backers. And then the only way to successfully pursue regime change would have been to devote a lot more um, resources to the problem than we were prepared to, especially with the sort of legacy of the Iraq war in our minds. So Turkey is obviously, as you say, another relevant neighbor. Uh, Turkey wasn't there to thwart our success in the same way that Russia and Iran were, but Turkey had its own interests. Um, and Turkey initially was reluctant to join us in trying to get rid of Assad. And then Turkey became so determined to get rid of Assad that it was the other way around, that they were trying to pull us into a situation where we would use our power to get rid of Assad. And then they flipped again uh, to ultimately prioritize their relationship with the Kurds over um, their priority of getting rid of Assad. And you know, to sum up, I think the US-Turkey difference or legacy in Syria, the issue is that you know, everybody had a list of adversaries in Syria, but ours and Turkey's were almost inversely listed, uh, which is to say we cared first and foremost about the Islamic State and then getting rid of Assad, and Kurds were actually our partners, whereas for Turkey it was exactly the other way around. Um, Assad was their main, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Kurds were their main adversary, then Assad, and then the Islamic State. And that disalignment of interests has led, I think, to a real U.S.-Turkish strategic divergence. Do you think that divergence can be closed? And, and I know you spent a lot of time in your career working on Turkey, and you know the country well. Uh, how do you see the relationship developing with, with Erdogan? I mean, can we still consider Turkey an ally, or will the relationship become more transactional? over time? Uh, I don't think it can be fundamentally or completely closed. I mean, it's a real strategic divergence. I mean, you mentioned my background on Turkey. I've worked on Turkey for a long time. I was Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and responsible for Turkey in the first Obama uh, term. And, uh, you know, what was striking, what's striking to me in that perspective is we really saw the partnership with Turkey, which you'll recall Obama called a model partnership or striving for a model partnership in 2009 at the start of his term because we thought that there was the potential for a real uh, a deep cooperation between the two countries and Turkey's role in the region as a country that can talk to Israelis and the Palestinians uh, at the same time, a majority Muslim country, uh, but a country that was seeking to join the European Union and democratizing and sidelining the military and having more press freedoms. There was a lot of hope in that relationship um, and it, in a potential strategic alignment. And so that's why, you know, I now say this with some regret, whatever, 12 years later, that we're a long way from that. And both there are differences domestically in terms of what's taking place in Turkey domestically and repression and, and the ending of press freedoms as opposed to the opposite. Um, obviously, the coup and its aftermath from 2016, but regionally as well. Uh, we are significantly dis disaligned in the way I described it um, in Syria. Uh, especially, and so long as the United States is going to see Kurdish forces as you know, partners in Syria in the campaign against ISIS, whereas Turkey is going to see them as 
potential threats and allied with the PKK terrorist organization in Turkey, it's going to be tough to cooperate. Um, and similarly, you know, partly because of this divergence on Syria, it has spread to other areas, including Russia, where another of the big gaps between the United States and Turkey is, was Turkey's decision to procure advanced Russian um, air and missile defenses in the, in the S-400 system, which Washington told Turkey, a NATO ally, was simply incompatible with Turkey's participation in the F-35 fighter program. And despite that, Turkey went ahead and gave a big contract to Russia, and the United States expelled Turkey from that program. Those are serious divergences that can't be patched over. I don't think we're to the point where, and I'm not in the camp that suggests, you know, therefore Turkey is an adversary, write them off, find some way to push them out of NATO. Uh, we do have real differences, but we also have important interests, and Turkey is an important country. And I think the you know, nostalgic aspiration to a model partnership and common values is probably out of reach for the moment, but, um, but it is still in our interest to prevent that deterioration from getting out of hand and finding areas where we can work together. So yes, I mean, you asked will the relationship be more transactional? I suspect it will. Um, and if Turkey is unwilling to align with American strategic goals, then that's regrettable, but we still have an interest in finding areas where we can cooperate if we can. Phil, your chapter on Iraq is called Mission Accomplished. You talked about that earlier uh, and how Iraq is kind of the defining case study of, of regime change of, of the last couple decades in any case. And yes, in Iraq, the regime was changed. Uh, Saddam Hussein was one of the most brutal dictators ever. Uh, he was overthrown in short order by American military power. But you point out many of the reasons regime change can on, in, on those terms be a success and not a success. But Iraq, despite its current precarious situation, here we are you know, 17 years later, now has a president and a prime minister who are as good as, good as it gets uh, in supporting reform and regional stability and the role of the United States. They're, they're working hard. What is our obligation to Iraq and what is its priority for the U.S. as you see it? And are you optimistic about the direction of Iraq and U.S.-Iraq relations? So uh, two points. One is just on the net, you know, on the balance sheet of regime change in Iraq. I think you can point out that Iraq has a, a good president and prime minister that we can work with and that, you know, things are better than they were in uh, from 2003 to 2008. Uh, while still having to accept the reality that on balance, the costs of getting to where we are today um, vastly exceed the benefits. You know, I, I sometimes say, and maybe even say in the book, that when you devote, you know, more than a trillion dollars to an operation and lose more than 5,000 U.S. lives and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives and boost jihadism as part of a resistance against the American invasion and empower Iran uh, in Iraq, perhaps permanently, the outcome needs to be more than a sort of wash, where you can also point to a couple of good things. And you know, obviously, another good thing is that Saddam Hussein uh, is no longer around. So again, I go back to my earlier point. In all of these cases, and I try to be fair about this when I look back at these, in all of these cases, there was an immense problem to begin with. Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator. He had pursued weapons of mass destruction uh, in the past, and uh, and 
on balance, not having him around was obviously going to be a good thing. The problem with regime change in Iraq was the notion, or you could say the fantasy, that by deploying American military power, we could uh, not only remove him, because that actually did turn out to be the relatively easy part, but put some sort of stable situation in place without it costing us what it did. And I, you know, I mentioned a trillion dollars, which amounts to, you know, to put it in sort of terms that really sink in better, uh, around $300 million a day for every single day for the first 10 years after the invasion. So there's a real opportunity cost to that, um, even beyond the reality that we also empowered Iran in Iraq and set off the deep instability costs for a lot of lives. So the two things can be true at the same time. One, the Iraq war was a, a huge and costly disaster for the United States and its interests. But two, there are some positive things slowly and gradually taking place in Iraq that we should support. And so, you know, we are where we are. There's no sense you, uh, um, uh, having this debate about whether we should have done regime change Iraq or not. Um, the bottom line is starting where we are, what is in our interest? And our interest is to, uh, to see Iraq that is stable, um, uh, not entirely a client of Iran, and a potential partner for the United States. So I think we, uh, you know, you talk about it in terms of obligations. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, but it's certainly in our interest to the, to where we can um, support the current Iraqi government and stability in Iraq. Last question. Looking ahead, what do you see as the priorities for U.S. policy and the U.S. role in the region and the most pressing challenges that the Biden administration is going to face? And and do you see the normalization agreements, we haven't talked about those yet, that Israel has signed with the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan as positive and something to build on? Uh, right. So there will be no shortage of challenges for the incoming Biden administration in the Middle East. That, that goes without saying. And I do think it's important to keep in mind that we still have interest in the region. I mean, there is a bit of risk of overshooting here. I think Frankly, most Americans are probably in agreement with this notion that we have overshot in the region and that we have devoted too many uh, resources to the region, at least relative to elsewhere, and that these interventions have gone badly and have not been in our interest. I mean, you see that broadly in public opinion and polling about Iraq and Afghanistan, but you also hear it in the political debate. Um, the risk, however, and obviously I'm you know, reinforcing that notion when I warn about overreaching and trying to accomplish more than we realistically can. But I do worry a little bit about overreach in the sense that it is possible to, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And you hear this both on the left and the right. I mean, President Trump, um, you know, even while fantasizing sometimes about regime change in Iran, also implies that we don't have any interest and we can get the heck out of the region. And you hear it sometimes on the left as well. And I do think there is a risk in going too far in that direction, because we still do have uh, interests in the region in nuclear non-proliferation, frankly, in saving lives and, and preventing refugees, uh, in uh, encountering terrorism uh, against the United States or others. So uh, a Biden administration is going to have a huge set of challenges. They still include Iran, um, which the Trump administration, for all its maximum pressure, did not solve and in fact, you know, made much worse because Iran is now expanding its nuclear program rather than respecting limits and it is still interfering in its neighbors affairs and the regime doesn't seem to be going anywhere. 
the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue for all of the talk of Trump's deal of the century has only gotten worse, not better. You have a, a tremendous humanitarian tragedy in Yemen. Syria is uh, unresolved. Uh, the ISIS threat has been significantly reduced, but it could come back without um, international attention. We've already talked about Iraq, and I could go on. So um, for all of the desire, I think you'll see in the, among the American public or even potentially the administration to pivot away from the region, you know, I suspect we're going to have to be paying a, a whole lot of attention to it in the years to come. Uh, on normalization, that's one of the positive things uh, that has happened in the past uh, several years. It's been a longstanding U.S. interest, I think, among Republicans and Democrats alike to see Israel welcomed into the region and have uh, overt diplomatic ties with neighbors. But we also shouldn't imagine that it, we shouldn't ask it to do more than it can. It's a positive thing. Uh, it's a positive thing to see diplomatic uh, relations come out in the open. We, we know there were contacts before. It'll be a positive things for their economy. It'll be positive things for you know, Israeli and Emirati and Bahraini tourists. But it doesn't really even scratch the surface of the long list of challenges and problems that I um, articulated just a minute ago. Um, it certainly doesn't do anything to solve the Palestinian problem, which is still there. And even the aspect of it where the Israelis ostensibly um, suspended annexation as part of this deal, which was part of what was initially applauded, um, uh, the Israeli government doesn't seem uh, indefinitely committed to that. And the fact of expanding settlements, some of which were only recently announced, um, just underscores the reality that, that the Palestinian problem, which is also obviously an Israeli problem, raises questions about Israel's future as a Jewish democratic secure state, is not really affected, certainly not in a positive way by normalization, uh, nor is the other set of challenges with the United States and its Gulf partners uh, in the region, which, as I mentioned, include things like the war uh, in Yemen. So, um, so yes, that there are fortunately the occasional positive steps in the region, but uh, uh, not nearly enough to overcome the very long list of tremendous challenges that an incoming administration is going to face. Bill, congratulations on an excellent book, Losing the Long Game, which I enthusiastically recommend to all of our listeners. And thank you for being with us today on On the Middle East. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. I will be right back with a few closing remarks and takeaways from our conversation just now with Phil Gordon after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. 
You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. few takeaways from my conversation just now with Phil Gordon. The first is that regime change can be born of good intentions, but still be really bad policy. The regimes of Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, to name a few of those we discuss, sure deserve to be changed or overthrown. Americans understandably and rightly are moved by the suffering of other peoples under these despotic regimes. But good intentions are no excuse given costs and lives and money. The default position of governments where regimes are changed are often collapsed or failed states where the U.S. and others are hesitant to commit the security forces required to bring stability. And thus, in the post-conflict situation, open up those countries to the intrigues of the regional players who act on their own interests, not in sync with those of the United States or the people of the countries whose regime was just opposed. And the critique of regime change is not a critique of the use of force, per se. Phil describes in his book how the Clinton administration, leading NATO, deployed force to push back Serbian aggression in Bosnia, not to demand Slobodan Milosevic's overthrow. Milosevic later faced the rejection of his own people and was turned over to the Hague Tribunal for war crimes. The credible threat or use of force as needed to back up diplomacy and alliances and to enforce clear objectives might be the better guidance than ideology or the good intentions behind saying that this or that dictator, quote, must go without thinking through the costs or consequences of such a policy or its dismal record, as Phil Gordon documents in his book. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.